0: In 1967, uh, Israel, in the, during the Six-Day War, they took uh, the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip is not a big piece of real estate. It's about six miles wide, 24 miles long. It's a uh, southwest corner between Israel and the Mediterranean Sea. It's a uh, home of the ancient Philistines. Uh, Israel took it in 67. January 2005, the then Prime Minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon, Ariel Sharon, gave it to the Phil- Palestinians as and an hopefully hoping to broker peace. Uh, February 2006, uh, Sharon uh, had a massive stroke. He's still today in a vegetative state from that. Um, Pat Robertson, televangelist from 700 Club, went on to share his thoughts. Newsweek captured them and and quoted him saying this, Sharon was personally a very likable person, and I am sad to see him in this condition. But I think we need to look at the Bible. In the book of Joel, the prophet Joel makes it very clear that God has enmity against those who divide my land. Robertson is saying that according to Scripture, uh, Ariel Sharon's stroke was God's judgment for giving away part of the Holy Land. So what do you think about this? Now, some folk would say, no, I, I disagree with, uh, uh, I mean, agree with the media. We've had a field day on this, as you can imagine. You know, oh, those crazy Christians and goofy Pat Robertson and on and on and on. You might say, well, I don't like Pat Robertson. He's a goofy sort of person. I'm not a fan of the theology of the 700 Club. Therefore, I'm throwing my hat into the media's ring here, and it's just wrong. He, he did it wrong. I'm not sure why he just used Scripture improperly. Or you might say, I like Pat Robertson. He's not goofy at all. He's a godly person. And God has used the 700 Club. And so you know what? He did it right. I'm sure he's handled Scripture correctly. Now, we got to know that we what we cannot do is we cannot determine how someone uses Scripture based upon the messenger. Whether we like the messenger, we do this kind of thing all the time. If we like John Piper, it almost doesn't matter what he says, we're going to gravitate to it. If we don't like Bill Hybels, it doesn't matter what the man says, it's going to be suspect. We do that with all kinds of folk. But as students of the word of God, we have to be able to to look at their use of scripture because Robertson wasn't claiming his own authority here, he was claiming God's word. We have to be able to look at God's word and ascertain whether or not it's used properly. Now, this is real important for us today because of our electronic age. I mean, you do not have to have a theological license to get a web page, set yourself up as the Bible answer man, and just be out there trying to convince other people of your interpretation of Scripture. I mean, just Google something. Google a question about a Bible verse, and all kinds of stuff comes up. And all these folk are trying to let you know that their view is correct and everyone else's is wrong, and they'll tell you why it's wrong. Uh, besides our regular media or traditional media, we've, you know, we have our, our books and authors that are quoting scripture all over the place. We, we have journals and magazines. You've gone to Electronic Age. We've got these, these radio guys that you can listen to. We've got televangelists and all the digital stuff, podcasts, live stream services. You're good friends sharing with you what God taught them and, and what God's word says based on something that they heard. Pray, preachers in church. It comes at you all over the place. And you have to have some ability or, or something in your toolbox to be able to discern whether or not they 're using scripture correctly, other than well i just don 't like this guy or I like this guy, and so I am encouraged i 'm excited actually for the series that we got coming up that we 're starting today scripture twisting. Uh, I, I do so my excitement is with a bit of fear and trepidation because we 're going to do something different than i 've ever done before on a Sunday morning. Instead of delivering typical sermonic messages, we're going to turn it more into a classroom with more teaching sort of stuff. And so let me encourage you, in a classroom, if you're going to class, you wouldn't dare show up without your textbook. I'm encourage you to bring your Bible because we're going to go through it. Uh, you want to bring a pen. We've got special notes for you in the bulletin. Uh, if you are in a life group, that's fantastic. Take notes, Draw concerns, questions, take them to your live group and share them there. That would be wonderful. Don't write me any letters. Uh, That would be great. But you need to know, as we enter into this, I do enter with fear and trepidation also. Because most probably, I'm going to push you a little bit out of your comfort zone. We're going to be stretched a little bit. Uh, There will be times where you might be angry with me. As we deal with certain texts, maybe you had a certain view on a text that has meant a lot to you. But as we examine it, it may not really be what God meant by that text. There's going to be some things that are new. They're going to come at you. You're going to wrestle. I'm, I'm okay. Wrestle. Don't necess- you don't necessarily have to agree. Just be able to say why you disagree versus I just don't. That's all. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And so as we're on through this study, you know, one of the things that, that you hear, and that I hear, is is why do we have to do a study on Bible interpretation? I mean, it sounds a bit mm, fleshy. You know, I just I just like to open the Bible and have the Holy Spirit teach me. And, and that's where I'll go. That's how, how I do it. Problem is, what if the Holy Spirit gives person A and person B two separate things? Well, we know the Holy Spirit really didn't do that. Obviously, the other person heard wrong, right? That, that's what really what happened. Uh, I believe that we want to hear the voice of God, but we want to do it through common sense, which is a gift from him. It's nothing that fleshly, earthly man invented. So as we look at rules of interpretation over the next few weeks, let me give you a couple of uh, categories for these. First of all, rules of interpretation. There are many, many rules. There are some universal rules for interpreting any kind of literature. These are going to be found uh, in the literature department on Penn State's campus. These will be found at the University of Chicago, Beijing. These are just universal rules that you bring to literature seeking to understand and discern what the authorial intent is. Universal rules. And when scripture is literature, and so we will use those. But we believe scripture is more than literature, right? It is God's word. It is divine. And so there are some rules that we're going to look at that are Bible-specific. And there, again, there are many, many, many rules. We can't look at them all. Uh, Some of them are very, very, very fine, detailed type things. But we're going to look at five or six over the next several weeks. And here's the goal. If we can each have a a, a toolbox with five or six rules of interpretation that when we're driving and we're listening to the guy on the radio, that when we've got the CD in or we're, we're walking and we're listening to somebody's podcast or we're listening to a preacher or we're having quiet time, whatever else, we can go through, pull those up and say, what does God's word really say here? What does it really mean? How do I really apply this to my life? Very, very important. Now, People will ask, why are you doing this kind of study again? I mean, can't we just open God's Word and it's just plain and go through the plain teaching of Scripture? Well, the first reason why we're doing this is because the plain teaching of Scripture is not always that plain. It's just, it's just not. Here we've got Leviticus 19.19. 19. God says, keep my decrees. Straight up, right? Do not mate to different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seeds. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Now, we might say, okay, I'm not mating any two different kinds of animals. I'm going to obey God's word on that one. Uh, But you're going to put different things in your garden this spring? It's just tomatoes. Different things? Uh, You might have an issue. I was tempted to say, reach in front of you. I'm not saying this. But reach in front of you, the pew in front of you, and look down the back of the person and pull out that little taggy thing on the back of their coat or their sweater or their shirt and see if, in fact, they are wearing clothing made of two different kinds of material. Odds are high. We all are in trouble with this. So, what, are we all disobedient? Or how do you interpret this? Isaiah 53. He says, let not the eunuch say, I am a dry tree. What do you do with that, right? Ah, okay, if I'm a eunuch, I'll say I'm not a dry tree. That's how I apply it. Let's move on. Uh, I think there might be more to that. Actually, it's an incredible section. Uh, we want to go to the New Testament, though, because those were Old Testament things. Greet, back up one, will you, will you Linda, just one. Greet one another with holy kiss. Ah, what do you do with that? Did you apply that this morning? Well, who are you greeting with the holy kiss? That's the question, right? We've got to interpret it. Hebrews 6, it says, It's impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. What? Does this mean? It sounds like, does it not mean that you can lose your salvation? And if you can, according to this text, you can't get it back again. We need to interpret what the text means. The plain teaching of Scripture isn't always that plain. That's why there are over 2,000 Protestant denominations in the United States, all based on interpretations of different verses and different doctrinal elements. Oh, what, do you, what do you do with that? It's the second reason why we do this. And that's because scripture twisting is just so pervasive. I mean, don't think this just happens once in a blue moon. Or one of those, those off-the-wall author people. Sure, if you get one of those guys, you might get some crazy stuff. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2. The only person speaking is God. Then chapter 3. The very next person to speak is Satan. And the very first thing Satan says is, hath God said? He looks at Eve, Has God really said? You know, she, she says, yeah, you know, we, the tree will we'll partake in, and we'll die. And, he says, and, and Satan says to her, Eve, you're misinterpreting what God said. Death? What is death? You shall not surely die. And then Eve decides to do a little scripture twisting. She comes back and she said, God did say that if we take of the tree, we, we can't take of this tree. Not only that, he said, we can't touch it. God never said she couldn't touch it. Legalism is born. You know, There's another way of scripture twisting. We add to what God said as well. In, in Matthew chapter 4, we got to know Satan's tactics never end. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus being tempted by Satan, and says, then the devil took him to the holy city, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. And he's going to quote Psalm 91. And he quotes it correctly, by the way. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan saying, hey, I know Scripture's important to you, Jesus. Listen, this is what it says. Now, next verse, we may get to it in the future. Jesus comes back to Satan and helps him see how he's misinterpreting, not misquoting God's word. Satan knows this, that if Eve, that if Jesus, if you, if I, follow after God's word misinterpreted, it will lead us the wrong way. Very important. No amount of faith, no amount of sincerity will offset following a wrong interpretation. If you hold to Satan's interpretation of Psalm 91, you go to the Empire State Building, you decide you're just going to jump off because it's what it says, man. Before I hit the bottom, the angels are going to catch me. It's a possibility, I suppose, that God can come through for you. But I wouldn't be holding on this text for that purpose because that's not you might find just before you hit the ground that, man, I think I misinterpreted this. It's not going to work for you. Uh, Scripture twisting is incredibly pervasive. Everybody is, is and I, I'm going to guess that the vast majority of folk are not wolves in sheep's clothing trying to twist Scripture. There are those folk out there. And it's not just cultic people, but good, well-meaning people who are just mishandling the word of the word of God. There's a third reason why we uh, are doing this study, and that's because it's God's word that's powerful to change lives. Not my, my opinion of it or your opinion of it. Now follow with me because in communication theory, two two elements. There's the content and then there's the medium. Okay, how it's delivered. Okay, this content, what you're saying, medium, how you're gonna say it. I'm gonna preach it, I'm gonna write it, you know, puppet show, creative dance, whatever you're into. Uh, We got we got the message and we got the medium. We have a hard time. People have a hard time separating those two. We we think it's all the same. So if somebody's got incredible content and they've studied art and they've researched and they're just nailing it all over the place, but they're boring as all get out, why don't we fall asleep in five minutes and we leave saying, man, that was just the most terrible, it was an awful thing. Meanwhile, the content may have been great. Now, before, before you, you poo-poo that for a second, the the delivery is very important. If I've got a Japanese neighbor who just speaks Japanese and I give them the gospel clear, I mean, so clear, Jesus couldn't do it better. It was just... Perfect, it was the word of God, it was perfect, but I do it in English. You know what? The content was right, but they're not gonna understand any of it. The delivery is important. Now, the other side though is what happens to most of us is if the person's a natural order, if they've got a gift of communication, they can make us laugh, they can make us cry, they entertain us. It's just wonderful to listen to this person. But the content, you know, it's superficial, maybe it's twisted a little bit. Uh, we still walk away going, oh, that was great, that was fantastic, because it moved us. I've got to keep in mind reality, right? Hitler moved people, he was an incredible communicator. Simply because someone can communicate does not make their message good. This is how cults are formed. That which is going to change people's lives, based on Deuteronomy 6 or Joshua 1 or Psalm 1 or Psalm 19, Psalm 119, Hebrews 4, 2 Timothy 3. It's the word of God. And so we want to deliver it well. But, but the content, it's the word of God that's going to change people's lives. We might walk away week after week going, I've been entertained. We wouldn't say it that way. It was a good message, good message, good message. But if it's not God's word, if the content isn't there, it's not going to transform it's not going to transform. If the content is there, God's got all kinds of blessings on his, on his word. It, God's word has the power to, to transform. Now, there's a fourth reason. I think I got it numbered three again because I couldn't decide which one in the hierarchy. But not really. I just made a mistake. But a fourth reason that, that we do this is because the stakes are so high. Because the stakes are just so high. When you say, when I say, the Bible says, we are inferring, correct, God says. Now, if God, the one and only, true, faithful, only God of the universe says something, by golly, you better listen, right? And apply it or reject it to your peril. When we, when we speak for God, we better be quoting him correctly. I don't know if you've ever been misquoted. Isn't that a terrible thing you've been misquoted and all kinds of stuff gets out? God doesn't like to be misquoted either. He needs his, it's only his word that's going to change, not my view of it, my interpretation per se, my opinion of it. It's God's word that's going to change people's lives. Now, Pope Urban II, 1096 uh, A.D. Uh, then it's, it, was, it was not this simple. I don't mean to simplify it, but based on some of the examples in Joshua, came out and said, Christians, if in fact you unite and retake the Holy Land from that, Muslim horde that's there, God will bless you. He'll give you the land back. Thus, the Crusades were born. Now, 200 years of, of, of Crusades, uh, militarily speaking, they were a dismal failure. Uh, you know, the, the Crusaders won one out of seven battles. Uh, it, w- it was awful militarily, but, but spiritually it was worse. Now, Christianity and Islam were never good friends. But up to that point, they could work together in many ways, They were cordial to each other in in, in some ways anyway. But at that point, they militarily, vehemently took on an antagonistic role toward each other that we're living with today. The stakes are incredibly high when you misinterpret God's word. If you say thus saith God, you can hurt other people's faith. I knew a man uh, close to to me. His boy was uh, born with a birth defect. And new Christian, someone told him, you know what, if you pray for your son, God promises he will heal your son. God has promised that. And this new believer was like, wow, that's so cool. I'm glad. Of course God will do that for me. Yeah, he's God. And so he prayed, family, as much faith as you could possibly muster. And when it became obvious that God wasn't going to heal his boy, he walked away. And why not? Because if God promised, and God doesn't come through on his promises about this, How can I trust him? promises about eternal life or anything else? What kind of God is this? When you put words in God's mouth and make promises for God, you put other people's faith in major, major jeopardy. The stakes are just too, too high. We cannot miss this one. We just cannot mess up with this. Uh, I would say that there's another reason. We're going to have that in the notes if you're taking notes, but it's because we've been commanded to. Second Timothy, oh, I did have that on here, good. Uh, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. If you can correctly handle the word of truth, you can incorrectly handle the word of truth. Can't you? And he says, "Do your best. Give it everything you got to make sure you correctly handle the word of truth. Uh, very significant. And so uh, we're going to embark on this study. We're going to give you one, one uh, rule of interpretation this morning. And that is this probably one of the most abused rules. And that is simply that biblical example is not authoritative. In other words, biblical example is not a biblical command. Biblical example. Now, if you, if you were to follow me around and you say, you know what, we're going to uh, write your life out, Mark, what you do and what you say, as an, as an example. You know, I hope, I just hope that some of the things might be good. <laughs> and you would come out with some stuff that, you know, hey, that's a good thing, that's a godly thing. I, I, that's, that's biblically correct. But if you followed me around and you wrote all of what I said and did, you'd probably write some things, some examples that are, are, are motivated by my sinful nature. By my flesh, not real good. You'd probably write some things that are, that I do based on my personality. It's not the right way or the wrong way, but it's the way I'm wired. Someone else trying to do it my way it would drive them crazy, but this is just the way I'm wired. You might write some things, following my example, that I do based on my my culture. Right after Thanksgiving, my family goes out into the woods, we chop down a tree, pine tree, we drag it in the house, we put little lights on it, and somehow it's supposed to help us celebrate Christ's birth. Right Now, if, if in fact you're a believer in Sri Lanka or, or Cote d'Ivoire or Burkina Faso, and you read that, you're going to go, what? I don't, I don't. How am I going to do? I don't even. There's not even a pine forest around me. How am I going to do this one? In Scripture, there are some things people do There are good, godly things. So they tell their story. There are some things that even good, godly people do that are not good and godly. There are some things that are culturally bound. So when we say Scripture example is not authoritative. That's what we mean. Just because someone did it does not mean I'm supposed to do it, even if somebody godly does it. Real quick, what? Genesis 19. He takes his two daughters up into the hills. It's after Sodom was destroyed and on and on. His two daughters are roaming around in the hills with him, and they're saying, how in the world are we going to find a man up here in the hills? We're never going to get married. We're never going to have kids. We're going to be full of shame. What are we going to do? And then the oldest girl has got a plan. It's always the oldest one, right? The oldest one has got a plan. I know what we'll do. Sis, this is what we can do. We'll get dad drunk. And the first night he's drunk, I'll go in with him. And maybe I'll I'll be pregnant. And then the next evening, we'll get dad drunk. And sis, you can go in with him. And maybe you'll get pregnant. That's how we'll solve this. And that's what they do. And we would expect right after that, somewhere after that, for there to be a verse, God saying, and the thing Lot's daughters did was grievous in God's eyes. It was a horrific sin. But it's not listed like that. It doesn't say God thought it was a good idea, but it, it doesn't say anything where God was disapproved either. And that's often with examples in Scripture. Now, let me, biblical examples, not authoritative. Let me let's unpack that a little bit further. Jesus, for example. Uh, we're supposed to be like Jesus, right? He must increase, he must decrease, on and on and on. We all want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? Yes, we want to be like Jesus. There was a teenage boy who was after his dad's keys to his new car saying, Dad, help me, can I just borrow your car because i got to get to youth group. And Dad said, Oh, son, you're not touching this car. He said, No, no, Dad, listen, they're going to teach me how to be more like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus, Dad. Don't you want me to be like Jesus? Let me borrow your keys. And Dad said, Listen, son, you want to be like Jesus? Then walk because Jesus never drove anywhere. You know, if we can find a donkey, go for it. But that's as far as it's going. Be like Jesus. Jesus wore robes. You want to be like Jesus, wear a robe. Jesus had a beard. So sorry, girls, guys, we can be more like Jesus than the women. We can wear a bit of beard. Jesus spoke Aramaic. If you want to be like Jesus, even though no one else is speaking it, you've got to learn Aramaic. Jesus lived in Palestine. If you really want to be like Jesus, that's where you're going to move to. I grew up in a church that was very, very conservative, somewhat, uh, some might say legalistic. And at least we had some people in the church who certainly were there. And I remember being told, Mark, yeah, I was trying to organize this roller skating thing. I was in high school. Roller skating is of the devil. Could you see and this is don't you hate it when they came at you with this? They came at this all the time. Could you see Jesus roller skating? <laughs> no, no, you know, maybe, you know, going around and the wind's kind of blowing his hair and his robes and they turn the black light on, you know, it looked like transfiguration or something. But then going in the middle and doing the hokey pokey? No, no, I can't see Jesus roller skating. I can't. Can you see Jesus eating pizza? No, I can't. Can you see Jesus bowling? You know, no, it's 300 every game. I don't know. No, I can't see Jesus bowling either. Can you see Jesus wearing jeans? No, no, no. I can't. In my mind, I can't see Jesus outside of his culture that I suppose it to be. I, I can't picture him outside of that. We would say, well, that's obviously Mark. Those are cultural elements. We can discern that. All right, how about this? Jesus was single. As a matter of fact, culturally, he should have been married. It would have been expected for him to be married, but Jesus remained single. Now, there are people out who will say if you really love him and you're really committed to him and you're really committed to his church, you know what, his church will be more important to you than than earthly spouse and therefore if you're really holy, you're going to be single and committed to his church more than a family. And so if you're you're, you're sitting there thinking, I I really want to get married but I really want to be like Jesus and I'm just not sure what to do with this... Uh, Keep in mind that biblical example is not authoritative. Where you need to go is the instructional portions of Scripture, your sermons, the epistles, on and on. And you should go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me just mention this for you. What a deal. 1 Corinthians 7. And the whole chapter is an excellent chapter. But Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, It is good for a man not to marry, but since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay, he says, yeah, you can go that route. Verse 25, he says, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. All he means by this is I haven't heard any specific teaching from Jesus' mouth on this one. It's still inspired. It's just as inspired as any other portion of Scripture. He says, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. So if, in fact, you're wondering, oh, I, I want to get married, but I want to be like Jesus. If you do marry, if you, if you feel like, if you sense, if, this is what God would have you to do. Paul says, don't worry about it. You have not sinned. Now, you need to marry the right person and on and on. That's a whole different deal. But we go to the instructional elements of Scripture. Examples, even of godly people, are not necessarily always to be... uh, They're they're not authoritative. In your notes, I think it mentions Gideon. We're going to bypass Gideon for right now out of the sake of of time. Great study if you're in a life group. Judges 6, excellent, excellent story. But let me look at the third element there, and that is the idea of speaking in tongues. Boy, this is huge, right? And please know that we are not doing a full-blown theological study on tongues. That's not the goal here. Uh, The question we are seeking to answer is, can I look at a biblical example as authoritative? Is a biblical example normative? Is it prescriptive, that means it's prescribed for me, or is it just descriptive, it's just describing what happened? I was probably a freshman in, at Moody. I was out of school. I was at my church, about 100 people, I guess. We had our Sunday school picnic. You rent a pavilion, and everyone's there, and you're throwing water balloons and passing casseroles. It's just a wonderful time. Then three, three or four college kids, I remember, crashed our Sunday school picnic. I see them walking up the road. And so I go over to them, and, hey, how are you doing? And they said, got a question for you. Are you a believer? I said, yes, I am. That's wonderful. Are you a believer? Yes, we are. Good. Yay, That's great. Second question, they said, "Have you spoken in tongues?" I said, "Well, no, I have." And they said, "Well, then you are just not filled with the Holy Spirit. That's all there is to it." I said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah, no, you're just not." I said, "Huh?" I said, "Can you?" They had their Bibles. I said, "Can you show me?" And they said, "Yeah, yeah, we can show you. That's not a problem." They took me to Acts chapter two, and in Acts chapter two, I uh, begin in verse one. It says, "When the day of Pentecost came." They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I said, this happened to you? And they said, absolutely it did. I said, wow. So, I mean, you had like little tongues of fire come on your head. And they said, I said, and so you heard, you heard this major noise, this wind blowing. And they said, I said, wait a minute, there are three things mentioned here. Wind, sound of wind, the tongues of fire, and speaking in tongues. Why do you just take one of them and make it normative? It would seem to me that all of them should be normative. Look over to Acts 8. If you've got your scripture, you've got your Bible. And again, I'm not saying tongues are or are not. We'll we'll talk about that in just a second. But Acts chapter 8, verse 14. It says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Same thing, they're trying to get the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. If you read the rest of the verses, read on and on, what you won't see are tongues, flames of fire or a wind blowing. They're just not there. They didn't happen here. And then over chapter nine, this is Paul's, Apostle Paul's conversion. Verse 17. It says, Then Ananias went into the house and entered it, chapter 9, verse 17, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Paul's eyes, and he could see again, and he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food he regained his strength. Notice, no flames of fire, no mighty wind blowing, no tongues but scales falling from his eyes. It's a different sort of deal. Chapter 19 of Acts. This is the, the, the last reference of tongues in Acts. I'll, I'll start verse 1 just to give you the context. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now notice, you got tongues, but you don't have the fire, you don't, you don't have the wind, and you, do, you don't have the scales, but you do have prophecy, the best we can do. Based on the, 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 the examples in Acts, is to say that sometimes tongues come, sometimes prophecy comes, sometimes some supernatural manifestations come flames of fire, wind blowing, sometimes not. That's the best we can do there. Now, just, just so you, you know, there are four different times tongues come through in the book of Acts 2 8, 10, and 11, and then 19. And and each time, if you want to hold to the example, that's okay, that's okay, but keep in mind, every example in Acts never has tongues coming to an individual, always groups of people. Also, when tongues came, okay, they were never talked about beforehand. No one said you had to speak in tongues, guys. No one taught them how to speak in tongues. No one told them the importance of speaking in tongues. It was like they were just hit upside the head by the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. That would be the model if, in fact, you want to follow the model. Now, if we want to know truly what tongues places in the church, go to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. We go to the instructional portions in order to get some insight on the on the examples, how they pertain, how they work through. Uh, lots of, lots of, of examples in Scripture. You might say then at this point, what good are the examples in Scripture? I mean, if in fact they're not authoritative, what good are they? incredibly so in this regard. Um, the other day, uh, I was, uh, this happens multiple times actually, but I'm at my computer, I Google, it's not working the way it's supposed to work, right? So I, I Google what I'm supposed to do. I'm reading the thing. I still can't get it set, can't figure it out. I bring in our IT guy who, just a few moments he does it, works fine. As I watch what he does, I go, "Ah, oh, that's what, kind of what they say. Now I see how it works. Last night, my computer wasn't working. Called my, after I spent at least an hour, called my son Nathan. Nathan, Nathan here, would you, would you figure this out immediately? I'm watching what he's doing. Oh, it's got one of thou. Oh, I see. Got it. Understand. I can see that now. Uh, scripture says I'm supposed to pray. I know I'm supposed to pray. I, 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 Jesus says it in Matthew 6, 6 in a sermon. Paul says it multiple times. I'm supposed to pray. Got it. But I'm struggling with this. Then I come across an example in Scripture, Mark 1, 35. Do we have that up at all, We're very early in the morning. Well, it was still dark. Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And I look at that. I know the commands, but I'm not sure. To, I look at that, and I go, that's a great idea. Get up before the day starts and, and, and check things out. Look, Jesus is intentional, man. He sets his alarm clock because he gets up before everybody else. It is still dark out. And he gets away to a solitary place. Yeah, I've been trying to pray in so much commotion. God, yes, 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 this is the way I can do it. Now, what you can't do with this verse is you can't say, this is a command. Good Christians pray in the morning. I pray in the morning. Don't you pray in the morning? You can't go down that road. What if you're a shift worker? This is not going to work for you, right? And if you really want to follow the example, keep in mind, he got up when it was still dark. You have to do that. And and it's going to be killer if you're living in Alaska, right? In the summertime, it's just not going to work for you. Also, he left the house. Also, keep in mind, he did not bring his Bible or his scrolls with him, just prayer. This, if you, you scriptural examples are not authoritative. Now, the South, during the Civil War era, when they thought the North was, was had their aversion to slavery or their their thinking on this was that this was purely political. The North was just trying to break the South's economic back. And, And the South realized that, you know what, we've got God on our side because the examples of Scripture, there's slavery all over the place. I mean, I mean, we got Abraham had slaves, and of course, the, the Israelites were made slaves by the Egyptians. but then when, when Joshua took the land, they made all the folk there that they didn't wipe out slaves, and then Saul had slaves, and David Codley, David had slaves, and Solomon had slaves. And on and on and on. Yes, yeah, slaves, of course. It's, it's, it's an institution from God slavery is. I can't believe the North is trying to wipe us out. And so they marched into battle. Again, we're not, I don't want to oversimplify this. There is economy and a lot of other things going on. but they marched into battle, partially because they thought they were following the examples of Scripture. There were somewhere between 620,000 to 850,000 American soldiers killed in the Civil War. All of the other wars America has been involved with combined don't give you that number. When you follow a wrong interpretation of Scripture, when you simply seek to follow an example, you can find a lot of trouble for you, for those around you now our goal again is the next several weeks we're going to come up with uh, a different rule each week pack that hopefully in our tool case we want to work with that there's some case studies on the back of your notes that want you to see work those things through if you can Um, and hopefully again by the end of our of our series we've got some tools to help interpret Especially as, as for today, as we go through, just, just keeping in mind that biblical examples are not authoritative.